Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome. This is another live edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North on Tuesday, February 15th, 2022. I, I hope you're all terrified right now. You're supposed to be because you're living in the midst of a national emergency. The scale of what you are today going through has been rivaled only by three points in Canadian history. World War One, World War Two, the FLQ crisis, and now the Bouncy Castle Revolution has joined the legions of war terror attacks on Canadian soil as being worthy of a national well, what is it? Is it a crisis? Is it an emergency? But, but don't worry. Fear not. I don't want to be too dramatic about this because after all, as we're going to learn from Justin Trudeau and from Rosie Barton of CBC, it's not at all a question of civil liberties. No, no, no. Nothing of the sorts. It's just uh, j just a little tool that helps the government. Let's take a look at what Justin Trudeau said about this as far as why he's invoking these emergency measures. Now, this is uh, just for I'm, I'm throwing things up here. I've decided to rip up the format. This is uh, the Trudeau clip number two. Don't worry, we're going to get to number one later. But Trudeau clip number two to those behind the scenes here uh, as to why we need to be as Canadians in a state of emergency right now. Invoking the Emergencies Act is never the first thing a government should do, nor even the second. The act is to be used sparingly and as a last resort. Right now, the situation requires additional tools not held by any other federal, provincial, or territorial law. Today, in these circumstances, it is now clear that responsible leadership requires us to do this. These measures must be and will be compliant with our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Indeed, the Emergencies Act was created in the late 80s to flow from and uphold the Charter. We'll always defend the rights of Canadians to peaceful assembly and to freedom of expression, but these blockades are illegal, and if you're still participating, the time to go home is now. That's quite something. At the very beginning, I was kind of thinking it's not the first thing a country should do. It's not the second. I thought he was going to go with, but it's definitely the third. But no, Justin Trudeau says it's the last resort. It's the, the final measure, the last straw, the very last tool a government has in its toolkit. I did a live stream with my colleagues Candace Malcolm and Harley Sims yesterday, and I pointed out what seems like an obvious point to me, but clearly isn't for Monsieur Trudeau, which is that uh, nowhere on the list of things the government of Canada was doing did apparently speaking to the truckers come up. Trudeau still hasn't done it. Conservative members of Parliament have been walking up and down Wellington Street, Elgin Street, Rideau Street. They've been having conversations. Justin Trudeau hasn't thought of having a single conversation. He hasn't even sent like a deputy undersecretary, assistant deputy minister of the Treasury for the Fisheries Department to go out and meet it. No, he's done nothing. No engagement, no discussion whatsoever. But he says it's the last resort. The last thing, well, what else have you done up until this point? So when you look at Justin Trudeau's flowchart, he's got number one, skiing. 
Number two, when skiing doesn't work, insulting. Number three, when insulting doesn't work, put on black. No, 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 sorry. That was number one. Ignore that. I was looking at the old version. So he's got skiing. He's got insulting. He's got insult some more. And then after that, he's got Emergencies Act. So I don't know how you get from these are a bunch of racist white supremacists, a fringe minority to this is a national emergency for which we need to suspend civil liberties. But that's the trajectory Justin Trudeau has decided to take on this. He's decided to go as far as a government can. This is, we talk about the word draconian, we talk about the word Orwellian. These are quite significant words that oftentimes have been fitting on measures far less severe and far less significant than what the Emergencies Act is, which again is the legislative sequel to the War Measures Act. Just because they've changed the name and tried to fit it within the framework of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms does not take away from the fact that this is meant to be a wartime bill. This is meant to be a wartime piece of legislation. And that is quite significant because I want you to understand precisely what the government is doing here. It's not accurate to call it martial law. We are not putting Canada under military rule. The pro In fact, I think military rule would be a lot better than Justin Trudeau rule. Martial law would probably be an improvement on Trudeau rule, Trudeau law, which is what we have now. But this is not what's happening here. He's not calling in the military. But what he is doing is turning banks into agents of the state. I want to play a clip from Christia Freeland, who is the deputy prime minister and finance minister, as she explains in perfect detail precisely what the government is using the Emergencies Act to do. Government is issuing an order with immediate effect under the Emergencies Act, authorizing Canadian financial institutions to temporarily cease providing financial services where the institution suspects that an account is being used to further the illegal blockades and occupations. This order covers both personal and corporate accounts. Third, we are directing Canadian financial institutions to review their relationships with anyone involved in the illegal blockades and report to the RCMP or CSIS. As of today, a bank or other financial service provider will be able to immediately freeze or suspend an account without a court order. In doing so, they will be protected against civil liability for actions taken in good faith. Federal government institutions will have a new broad authority to share relevant information with banks and other financial service providers to ensure that we can all work together to put a stop to the funding of these illegal blockades. This is about following the money. This is about stopping the financing of these illegal blockades. We are today serving notice. If your truck is being used in these illegal blockades, your corporate accounts will be frozen. The insurance on your vehicle will be suspended. Send your semi-trailers home. The Canadian economy needs them to be doing legitimate work, not to be illegally making us all poorer. 
I, it was a long clip, but I wanted you to hear the whole thing because the government went on in painstaking detail, painstaking detail about all the things they're doing here. And those measures are allowing banks to freeze accounts without a court order, suspending your right to appeal that, to take a bank to court and have that bank have any liability rather getting banks to rat you out to the RCMP if they suspect that you're involved in the blockade. And again, we don't know how much involved really involves here. Are we talking about anyone who donated or are we talking about the people that are processing donations? We just don't know. I want to talk about this with Christine Van Gein, who's the litigation director for the Canadian Constitution Foundation and joins us here live on the program. Christine, Let's start with the obvious here. I mean, is this a constitutional use of the Emergencies Act? So I think that there are a few problems that I immediately have with this invocation of the Emergencies Act. And I'm not the only one. This is sort of raised concern with constitutional experts across the political spectrum, as it should. The first major concern is that the threshold for actually invoking the Emergency Act may not have been met in this case. And while perhaps there is some evidence that the government is relying on that we don't have access to, there are really specific things that the Act requires in order for it to be invoked. Um, the government says that this is a public, uh, a public order emergency, but in order to meet that threshold, there are really specific criteria. It includes things like um, threats to the territorial integrity of our country, um, things like espionage or sabotage, foreign influenced activities that are detrimental to Canada's interests. And I think that, you know, that's a, that's a high bar. I, I don't think that the government at this point has presented us with the evidence that they have met that threshold. Um, I've read the order in council. It doesn't provide any more information um, than really what was said at the press conference yesterday. And this has a lot of people really concerned. We can't normalize the invocation of emergency legislation, um, which has been something that's happened throughout this pandemic. And really it looks like the federal government is invoking this legislation as a matter of political convenience. Um, one of the other things that the legislation requires is that the existing laws not be sufficient in order to deal with uh, whatever the crisis is. And in my view, the major crisis was the border blockage at Windsor, which was very disruptive mm -hmm. to uh, trade. It costs Canada's economy billions of dollars to disrupt that major trade route. Um, there was at the at, at one of the other border blockades there were some some pretty serious uh, security uh, concerns that were raised with what the RCMP uncovered at the at the block at that blockade but those blockades were all resolved using regular police powers there was no need to invoke emergency legislation to deal with that and unless there's something the government knows that we all don't know a, few, a bunch of noisy trucks on Wellington Street in front of Parliament while an inconvenience and potentially unlawful, but potentially not, um, doesn't justify the invocation of the Emergency Act, in, in, our, in my opinion and in the opinion of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. 
Well, you raise a, an important point there uh, about, you know, the information as we have it. Does the government have an obligation to be public about if there is a, a threat that would put it into that category? I, I know certainly if they were defending it in court, they would have to be transparent about that. But but do they have to give all of the reasons they think publicly in the legislation, in the order and council when they're invoking it? Not necessarily, right? It depends on what the nature of the emergency is. So if it's, for example, a, a really serious um, terrorist threat, um, there's intelligence that the government may not have an obligation to release because it's it's very confidential. It could jeopardize sources and methods, things like that. But uh, even if it were, even if that were to be challenged, if there were to be a challenge brought, and I think you could challenge this invocation of the emergency acts. It, it would be done by way of, um, of judicial review. So that is a government order. It's judicially reviewable. So um, if there is very, very confidential and sensitive information upon which the government is basing this decision to invoke the act, there are ways that the courts can deal with that. So the person challenging the law uh, would have uh, an amicus appointed who reviews the evidence and participates in the hearing with the judge and with the government in order to review that evidence and make arguments without having that evidence publicly disclosed or without having it disclosed to <clears throat> whoever the applicant is. Um, so this is something obviously <laughs> we're in talks with lawyers about what our next steps are. We haven't made any decisions right now, but we are we have been in talks with lawyers all day about this exact issue and what are what we're what we're going to do. And we are seriously contemplating uh, bringing a judicial review of this. The as we heard from Justin Trudeau yesterday and in the clip I, I shared just before you joined, he's saying that this is charter compliant. The Charter of Rights and Freedom still applies. And I, and I know in the Emergencies Act itself, which is distinct from the War Measures Act, which predates the charter, it says, yes, all of these measures have to be subject to the charter. But the charter also has Section 1, where the government can uh, override the rights, as we all know, if it uh, provides there is a, a reasonable limitation, demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society and, and so on does the government saying there's an emergency is that enough to widen the latitude that section one affords it so one thing that I, I find funny is I've seen this all over social media is uh, you know it's it's it, this can't be a violation of the charter because it's subject to the charter I mean of course it's subject to the charter all legislation is subject to the charter but that doesn't mean that the legislation is always being applied in a charter compliant manner. And, and this is something we need to talk about, right? I think that the, the invocation in particular of the emergency order to potentially freeze and seize assets without court order could, I mean, there's a very strong possibility, possibility that that particular part of the ordering council is not compliant with the charters guaranteed to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. Um, a, a, a seizure without court order is is not necessarily unreasonable, but I mean, it's the, the burden will be on the government to prove that it's not. So, I mean, there's, there's that. That just because the legislation says it's subject to the charter doesn't mean that the government isn't violating the charter in the way, the manner in which they're invoking it. That's really important. And I think that that has been lost on a lot of people. Um, on your other point, 
Will the government get deference from the courts because they are declaring an emergency? I don't know the answer to that, but what I will say is one thing that we have noticed throughout our charter litigation during this pandemic is that there has been a lot of deference that the courts have given to the government on pandemic measures. But this is not a pandemic measure, right? This is sort of mm -hmm. pandemic adjacent. And I think that the courts have shown deference on matters of, for example, epidemiology, that the judges will say, you know, they will defer to, to medical experts, but courts are quite um, experienced in dealing with matters of policing. And this is more of a policing measure than a science measure. And I think that the government, I think that the courts may not show the type of deference in this case that they have shown in other uh, pandemic related pieces of litigation. But, you know, we never know when it comes to the courts. That, that is true. And I, I think an important caution, the financial aspects of this are, are what I find the most chilling here, just given how broadly uh, defined or, or completely ill-defined they are. Obviously, they're extending and expanding a lot of existing measures to include uh, cryptocurrency. We know the convoy organizers have, have pivoted to Bitcoin when all of their other avenues of funding have been cut off or, or frozen in, in some form. But this idea of giving the banks uh, not just an obligation to start reporting if they suspect someone might be involved in this, but, but also to freeze accounts without a court order. Now, if you give a bank that power, I don't know if they're going to use it very broadly because they don't want to themselves uh, fi find that they're not complying with the law. I don't know if banks are, are known to be discreet or, or judicious about these sorts of things. But but to then to take away the bank's ability to be sued for that, to take away the judicial recourse and legal recourse you could have as a citizen here, I, do we know how they're going to interpret the government or the banks what involved means? Does it just extend to someone who maybe donates $50 to the trucker convoy, or is it only going after the big fish that are receiving donations in large six-figure, seven-figure sums? Yeah, I I actually don't know the answer to that, and I think most there are there is no answer to that right now. I, I've seen wow. advice from uh, criminal lawyers on this exact issue. Um, I have been emailed by a number of people asking if I made a donation. Um, what should I do? And what I would say is, is don't talk to media if you made a donation um, and continue to, to, to live your life. And the advice I've seen from criminal lawyers is uh, consider not making another donation because right now there's a lot of attention on that particular issue. But uh, that's the advice that I have seen. I don't, I don't know the answer to how this how banks would would exercise this uh, because it's pretty novel. Banks are risk, risk averse though, right? Yeah, and and that, I mean, we we've talked about uh, you and I have, and I, I've talked about it in the show with other people as well. The uh, government's unrelated attempts to go after internet speech, and and the theory that I've had with government regulation of social media companies is that for social media companies, it's not worth the hassle. So they'll just say, yeah, we'll delete this, we'll delete this, we'll delete this, because it's it's easier than getting involved with the bureaucracy and trying to go, you know, back and forth on you know this particular post or that particular post. I, I think the same thing applies here to 
the banks. If if there is anything convoy related, it may just be easier for the banks to say, okay, this is gone, this is gone, this is gone. I mean, when GoFundMe went after the fundraising campaign for the convoy, they zapped a whole bunch of others that were not even really supporting the convoy. One of them was a, an independent journalist whose, whose work I, I don't happen to agree with uh, ideologically, but they went after her fundraising account to fund her coverage of it just because it was in that space. So I, I do fear that there would be a lot of, a, a very overbroad approach that they take to this. And, and the fact that you as a lawyer who's read through this, who's seen the press conference doesn't have the answer to that, I think is very concerning because how is you know Gladys who wants to donate $10, how is she gonna have the answer? Well, none of us have the answer right now. And I think on its face, what was said in the press conference yesterday sounds like an invitation for banks to arbitrarily seize private property for people who are suspected of involvement with the protests without any built-in right to apply for reconsideration, um, whether intentional or inadvertent. So I think there are a lot of things that can go really badly wrong there and that is potentially unconstitutional. Uh, we, we have a, a right under our charter under Section 8 to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. And, and, and this is potentially a violation of that. So, so there are really two pr big problems here. Um, the first is that I don't think that the Emergency Act has been properly invoked. I think that this is a matter of political convenience for the Prime Minister to try. I mean, I, I, frankly, I think that this is, um, is a, 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 an attempt at political cover, right? Like this is an attempt for the Prime Minister to appear like he's doing something about the trucks, which are upsetting a lot of people in Ottawa. And I think that the government wanted to ease some pandemic restrictions. For example, they eased some restrictions today related to um, re-entry to the country. And they want to look tough on the trucks before they um, make an announcement like that so that they are not looking as if they're capitulating. That's not a national emergency. Like the prime minister's political crisis is not a national crisis. For the yeah, I, I think that's that's incredibly well said. And, and I never, guess I just never been invoked. No, I, I appreciate that. I'm sorry we uh, froze for just a moment there, but I, I will ask you just finally here, and I know you mentioned, Christine, you're still consulting with lawyers on this and uh, the, the actions you at the CCF might take and others might take still stand to be seen. But as far as the oversight, is there an ability to have this challenged in a very immediate basis through an injunction? Or is this the kind of thing that is going into mm -hmm. a very longer battle that could outlast the invocation of the act itself? Yeah, so the invocation only lasts for 30 days. So if there's a judicial review, which is how this would be heard and how it would be challenged, it would have to be heard on an emergency basis. The federal courts would have jurisdiction here and the federal courts are usually quite good at dealing with things quickly. So I, I actually think the fact that it's federal helps here. Um, it, it, it could be heard before that timeline is up. If it, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't attempt an injunction. I've been involved in injunctions in the past two years. Um, the, they have not gone particularly well because the threshold for an injunction against government action is incredibly high. The threshold in, for an injunction in general is incredibly high, but for government action in particular, and in the, in the context of the pandemic, there's just been too much deference to the government. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't attempt an injunction. I would go straight to the judicial review.
I will say, though, True North did manage to get an injunction against the uh, federal government for the Leaders Debates Commission exclusion a couple of years ago. That's but not that's a COVID not thing, though. I it's agree. On, it's on the COVID stuff that they yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, but, but it excluded no, us great. for COVID that, reasons. That we wouldn't great. have done as well, I suspect. And, and I think the lawyer that you used on that um, is a lawyer that we've worked with as well, Jessica Corrigan. Yeah, as well, she did it. She did a tremendous job and and actually had like one of the most uh, viral tweets of the yes. uh, pandemic in the last couple of days as well, talking about how we we all just need to get on with our lives. So uh, it's tremendous to have you and your, your colleagues on this file here. Christine Van Gyne of the Canadian Constitution Foundation will uh, certainly cover what uh, the CCF does with this in the uh, days and weeks ahead. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me, Andrew. All right. It's a, it's our pleasure. And again, I always, I love talking to Christine and, and we'll have her on anytime. I hate when I have to talk to her always because it's always coming when civil liberties are under threat. Civil liberties are under assault. And the danger in this, as you just heard it, is that there's so much that hasn't been defined. And it is political posturing. You get Justin Trudeau that comes out there and says, you know, we're telling you that you're breaking the law and we're, we're watching you. You've got Christian Freeland coming out and saying, we're putting you on notice. That's what she's saying. We're putting you on notice. And you may remember a couple of days ago, I spoke about Nadine Ellis Maffe, who's a woman who was visited by the OPP, who wanted to knock on her door and remind her that we're watching you. We know you're on that Facebook group. We're just telling you about your right to peaceful protest. Well, this is, I mean, worse than that, because they can go after your money. They can freeze your assets. They can take away your insurance, meaning that, that it is illegal for you to operate your truck even more than it is already. But that's what Christian Freeland is doing here, saying we are putting you on notice. You do not have the right to protest your government. This is the thing. They talk about the importance of peaceful protest, but this is a lawless protest. Well, civil disobedience inherently violates the law. So for the government to be very selective about it, as the government's doing here, they're saying you don't have the right to protest us. And if you do, we're going to go after your money. I want to play one more clip of Trudeau. This one's a bit shorter, but still very telling. This is Trudeau clip one. Not using the Emergencies Act to call in the military. We're not suspending fundamental rights or overriding the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We are not limiting people's freedom of speech. We are not limiting freedom of peaceful assembly. We are not preventing people from exercising their right to protest legally. We are reinforcing the principles, values, and institutions that keep all Canadians free. We are not taking away your right to peacefully protest we're taking away your rights so that we can protect the rights that keep you free to do the things that we're not letting you do. Okay, I think I've got it. Yeah, I think that's what he's doing. So what does peaceful protest mean? You're allowed to stand, you know, in this little tiny section of your neighborhood park and you can protest there, but you can't protest too loudly. You can't do it with a car horn. You can't do it in the streets. You can't do for the love of all that's holy. You can't do it with a bouncy castle. The bouncy castle was the last straw for the government. But what he's saying is that you don't actually have those rights. One of the measures I haven't mentioned beyond the financial aspects, beyond the added police powers, is the idea that you can be conscripted. If you're a tow truck driver, you can now be conscripted to start moving trucks. And if you don't go along with that, you could be charged. You could be jailed. 
So if you're a tow truck driver, you no longer have the right to make your own decisions. You can now be forced to work for the government. Keeping in mind, a lot of tow truck drivers are not interested in doing this. They support the trucker convoy. They haven't wanted to show up and tow them away. But now the government has had to conscript them under its emergency wartime powers to do this. So as much as this is something that we're told, oh, well, we didn't want to do it. This was a choice. And I'm glad Christine Van Gein was as honest about this as she was, that this is a political expediency question, not a question of whether we're in an emergency. And if you look around, there is not a lot of support for this. Academics on the left, on the right, civil liberties organizations, not just the Canadian Constitution Foundation, but also the Canadian Civil Liberties Association are coming out and condemning this. There are some people that are a little bit more deferential, but even then they're saying, okay, if you're going to do this, you have to tell us where the emergency is. Where is the injury? Where is the risk to Canadians? Oh, well, I, I should actually walk that back. I was in Ottawa. You wouldn't believe the carnage in Ottawa. There was a, a four-year-old that I think tripped in the bouncy castle. There was one guy that burned his tongue on hot chocolate, believe it or not. Uh, there was a, a Manitoban who accidentally bumped into a Quebecer on the dance floor. It's, it's literally a war zone. It is an absolute war zone. You've got kids with broken ankles, not even broken ankles, just a, just a little scratch here and there. And, and this is what Justin Trudeau is saying, oh, it's an emergency. They gave Omar, I mean, I don't want to make the comparison to Omar Cotter here, but I will because they gave him $10.5 million. But they've now made it illegal to give a $10 to a trucker, basically. Where is the justice in that? Part of peacefully protesting, part of freedom of expression, is the idea of being able to express your political opposition to the government. And that's exactly what's happening here. People are doing that. This has started a movement around the country where people are showing the government they've had enough. And it's working. It is absolutely working. The vaccine passports are being lifted in Ontario, in PEI, in Manitoba, Alberta, Saskatchewan, even Quebec. Quebec, which had a curfew. Quebec, which was threatening to tax the unvaccinated. And now Quebec is lifting the vaccine passport. Today, we had the government announce that you're no longer going to need a PCR test to fly into Canada or drive into Canada. They're getting rid of the PCR test requirement. Now, let me talk about this just for a moment, because I, I said uh, when this came out on Twitter, you know, does anyone else hear the faint sound of honking? Because I do think all of this is related to the convoy. And I had a number of people push back and say, well, it's not enough and it still is, is a being applied differently depending on whether someone's vaccinated and they're still replacing it with a rapid test. And all of that's true. You can look at the provincial governments that are lifting their vaccine passports and keeping other restrictions in place or the governments that are doing it more slowly than they could. All of that is completely fair. But I don't think the government was ever going to flip one switch and say every restriction is gone, every measure is gone. Now, it was always going to happen incrementally because that's the only way the government can pretend it's not related to the convoy. And I, it's completely valid to say it's not enough or it's not fast enough. But I am also not going to stand for people saying it's nothing and people standing and up and saying it's insignificant because it's not insignificant. We're talking about governments here that have put in place these regimes in spite of the science, in spite of the unconstitutionality, in spite of their divisiveness, and they've stood by them. 
And it's only now, as we look at, what, almost three weeks since the convoy pulled into Ottawa, that we've seen all of these things that I've just lifted in the last few moments start to go away piece by piece. And even if it's being done incrementally, it's very much being done because the public appetite is shifting. Governments have to save face. You can criticize the speed. Of course, do it. But don't say that nothing's happening because changes are being made. Changes are taking place here. And I do want to share something because Pierre Polyev, who's a conservative leadership candidate, did speak out about this on his way into the House of Commons. I think it was yesterday. And this was before the Emergency Act was officially declared, before that press conference. But we had seen reports of it. And this is what Pierre Polyev had to say. Well, it's clear that uh, Justin Trudeau has caused a political emergency. While the rest of the world and provinces across Canada are beginning to remove restrictions and mandates, Justin Trudeau decided to pile new ones on, targeting truckers' livelihoods. And now he's got protests right around the country. And now he's uh, dropping in the polls, desperately trying to save his political career and save face for himself. The solution is staring him in the face. All he has to do is listen to the experts, do what other countries are doing, and that is to eliminate these mandates and restrictions to let the protesters, including the truckers, go back to their jobs and their lives. And speaking about the protests, I'll repeat to you what I told the very first time the media asked me about them. I stand with those peaceful and law-abiding protesters, including truckers, who are championing their freedoms and their jobs, while holding personally accountable any individuals who behave badly, break laws, or participate in blockades of critical economic infrastructure. I've always been against blockades, and I still am now because I don't believe you can gain your freedom by blocking someone else's. So yes to peaceful protests, no to blockades. And you know how we can put an end to both of them, though? It's real simple. Listen to the science. Do what the other provinces and the co other countries are doing. That is to end the mandates and the restrictions so the protesters can get back to their lives and their jobs. That's a very clear message. You want a way out of this? End the mandates. End the vaccine passports. And as Pierre Pauly have indicated there, what they're asking for is not anything that the science the government so worships and idolizes is not asking for and calling for. Just look at the PCR test requirement for a moment. This was something the government's own expert panel said is not doing anything. When Omicron came and anyone and everyone was just testing positive for Omicron, regardless of anything, they were all, you, you didn't even need to be sick. You didn't even need to have the sniffles. People were testing positive for it. People were getting stranded overseas who were not sick, who were not symptomatic. They were getting stranded because of this government's stupid asinine testing requirement. You had people in the U.S. that were like driving back with, <laughs> there was one I saw that had to like put a sign up on their window being like, I have COVID. And I think the border officer just said, yeah, okay, come on, just wave them right through. 
But the protesters are not asking for anything unreasonable. They're just saying, end the mandates, end the passports. Everyone concedes that these things are all dividing society. The question is, are they prepared to admit that they have a role in that division? I, I was shaking my head watching this comment from Ontario Premier Doug Ford as he talks about lifting the vaccine passport in Ontario. And for the guy that put in the vaccine passport, he was awfully tone deaf about the effect that was having on the very problems he's describing here. Go to Costco, you can go to Walmart, you can go shopping. You know, you don't know if the person has a shot beside you or not, but we also know that it doesn't matter if you have one shot or 10 shots, you can catch COVID. See, the prime minister has triple shots, and I, I know hundreds of people with three shots that caught COVID. We just have to be careful. We've got to always make sure we wash our hands and, and move forward. But Colin, we can't stay in this position forever. We got to learn to live with this and get on with our lives. I bet if I asked every single person in this room, do you want these damn masks or do you want them off? They want them off. They want to get back to normal. They want to be able to go for dinner with their families. And there's every single person, including myself, knows people that are unvaccinated. You know, sure, there's there's the rebel rousers, and then there's just hardworking people that just don't believe in it. And and that's their choice. This is about again a democracy and freedoms and liberties. And I, I hate as a government telling anyone what to do. We just got to get moving forward and and get out of this and protect the jobs. You know, we're, I think a lot of people call them, probably yourself too, everyone's done with us. Like, we are done with it. Let's let's start moving on and cautiously. And, you know, we, we've, we've followed the rules, all of us, like 90% of us, for, for over two years. The world's done with it. So let's just move forward. The very beginning of that, oh, you could be in a Costco and you don't know who's vaccinated or who's not. It's like, well, okay, well, great. So you're saying that the vaccine passport wasn't needed. The vaccine passport didn't work. He's looking around saying, all of you, we, we don't want to wear a mask. I don't want to wear the mask. No one wants to wear the mask. Great. Then just take them off. This is not difficult to do. So Doug Ford is acknowledging there. And he said in that comment he made the other day about how it's uh, even affected his family, all of these things. You're acknowledging the harm that your measures are responsible for. And it's not just him. Every premier in the country went the same direction with it, although with different levels of zeal. And some of them were prepared to accept that a lot earlier than others. And for that, Alberta and Saskatchewan, I know a lot of people are angry at Scott Moe and Jason Kenney. Fine. But they at least realized sooner what was wrong. And maybe they don't get a gold star. But relatively speaking, it was better to be an Albertan or a Saskatchewanian, Saskatchewaner. I don't know where they're from. A person from Saskatchewan, it was better to be one of them than someone from Ontario or Quebec. I want to take a, a couple of your questions before we wrap things out here. Some are uh, very much, uh, some are very practical, practical questions that I will try to answer here. Uh, Ken asks, what can people do to fight this? This is the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And I think Christine gave a, a lot on this earlier. I think it's going to be subject to a legal challenge. The question is what kind of challenge and when, and how quickly can it be put into effect? Uh, Heather writes, how can one person invoke this act on his own? Is this even legal? Well, whether it's legal or not, I have no idea. We'll, we'll soon see. But certainly, Certainly one of the problems that's going to come up is that there, there is a, a cultural attitude within the liberal government that supports this, that is all for this. 
And there's a, a population of Canadians, I don't know how big or small, that welcomes this in. That says, yes, bring on the regulations, bring on the restrictions, shut down the civil liberties, shut down people's freedoms, go further. And NDP leader Jagmeet Singh was calling for the military. He was calling for them to bring in the army. This is the NDP. The NDP, the party that has candidates that every election you find out were saying that, oh, the poppy glorifies war. And they were saying, bring in the truckers to deal with these working class protesters. Garnett writes, has the Supreme Court weighed in? No, not yet. It's going to be challenged. And like Christine Van Gyne said, it could be challenged and should be challenged on an expedited basis, but it still will take time. And who knows how many people's bank accounts will be frozen in the interim. Uh, Tara has contributed through Super Chat. Thank you very much for that. She says, my dad passed away February 3rd and edicts kept me from seeing my family for two years. And then my concern for his health kept me from him after his cancer diagnosis and I'll never get him back. Ooh, that is heartbreaking to hear. And I'm so sorry for your loss, Tara, not just your loss of your father, but your loss of your rights. And, and I think Tara's story there is a reminder that these things are not at all abstract. I mean, I can talk about civil liberties uh, until the cows come home and the importance of freedom of speech. And, and I can lay out an academic argument for it. And I can talk about it in, in the grand sense and quote John Stuart Mill and George Orwell. But, but for people, these are real world consequences, real world consequences, being kept away from your family, being, if you're unvaccinated, prevented from traveling. Prevented from traveling, Brian Peckford, the former premier of Newfoundland, who now lives in British Columbia, I had him on the show a couple of weeks ago, he made it to the convoy, he had to drive across the country, he can't get on a plane and fly to Ottawa, he had to drive across the country to get to Ottawa so that he could stand up for civil liberties and the rights and freedoms enshrined in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the document that he helped pass and which is now being ignored as the government bans him and countless other Canadians from going across the country. So again, Tara, I'm sorry for your loss. I don't have the answer except to say that the number of people that are starting to see just how evil these measures are is very much growing. Fraser writes, I'm 73 years old, living on a small pension. I'm taking all my money out of the bank except for $100, and then I'll keep it in my safe. Look, I've heard from a lot of people like that. I, I'm not a, I, I know technology. I'm not a particularly expert person at technology. I couldn't I couldn't tell you how to buy a Bitcoin if my life depended on it. I could figure it out if I really wanted, but I'm not a crypto person. So if I were to try to move my money into crypto, I would have no idea what to do. And, and this is not an invitation for you to email me and tell me how to buy crypto. I'm just pointing out here that there are a lot of people who are even less tech savvy than me that would have no idea. But the government's going after that too. I don't know how they're going to do it, but the government is now trying to crack down on crypto because they don't want the trucker convoy to be able to get that. At a certain point, if you were to walk up and hand a trucker a roll up the rim tab that says, Gagne win, free coffee, Christian Freeland is going to come and throw the cuffs on you herself. That's where the government's going. Any material support that you dare to give to someone protesting against the liberals is going to be outlawed before long. You heard it here first. Michael writes, so now my 90% score in high school is a failure. We're 90% vaccinated and they are considering it a failure. So they restrict more. This is Michael, a brilliant point. First off, good on you for getting the 90% in high school. You're right. 90% now is not enough. 90% means, well, we've got a mandate. Why didn't you get a hundred? You didn't get a hundred. What's wrong with you? Special education for you. 
That's exactly what the government's saying here. They've moved the goalposts. At first it was, well, if we get to 70%, we'll have herd immunity and we could reopen. That was just one of many iterations of what started as two weeks to flatten the curve and is now we're freezing your bank accounts if you support a trucker that's unhappy he's been vaccine mandated out of a job. We're going to have another one of these live editions of the show in a couple days' time. I'm sorry for the tech glitches. We are still figuring out the new format. It's probably my fault. Let's be real. I want to blame Christian Freeland, but I can't always get away with that on everything. Or Scott Bryson. He's the one you're supposed to blame for for everything, as Justin Trudeau says. Uh, But we will have another one of these, and I love your comments. Keep them coming. If you want to support the work that True North is doing, you can head on over to donate.tnc.news. Also, I should say I'm headed back to Ottawa this week as well, especially with a looming crackdown. So we'll have some on the ground coverage. I don't know when that's going to be, but it is going to be this week in the next couple of days. I just don't know if my next show is going to be from here or from there, but we'll, uh, we'll get you covered one way or another. With that, we will talk to you soon. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.